Truth in Learning. I'm Matt Richter. Today, right now, I'm alone recording this because Will Tallheimer decided to go off on vacation. However, I have a fascinating discussion with Tiagi for our first half of the podcast. And then we waited till Will got back and we invited our friend Patty Schenk to join us. So we hope you enjoy both segments of the episode. Today we just have two. Hi, Tiagi. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining us again. My pleasure. Thank so, you for inviting me. So when, when we record this, uh, Will is off uh, gallivanting on the beach. So it's just you and me today. Okay. So I know the last time we were together with Will, we talked about uh, the different types of roles and responsibilities and functions that trainers had. And, you know, in differentiating between uh, instructional designers, being a facilitator, a trainer, and so forth. And um, uh, one of the things you spent a lot of time talking about as well is the role of the learner. So I thought that would be a, a good topic for you and I to chew on while Will's away. Sounds good. So just why don't we uh, just start with a general. When we talk about learner roles, other than the obvious that the, the role of the learner is to learn, uh, what are you talking about? What, do you, what are you referencing? Okay. Uh, it is a delusion that the, that the major role or the only role of the learner is to learn. I think the learners can do many, many more things. By learn, if you mean the learners shut up, listen to what the trainer is telling them, watch all the slides, study the handouts, and things of that nature. If by that we mean learn, I think uh, that is a traditional outmoded approach to the role of the learner. And I have been for a long time telling people that I learn a lot as a trainer from my learners and they learned as much or I learned as much as they did in my workshop. The only difference being I get paid, they don't. So in general, I think the learners can do a lot of different things in any training session, Matt. So, uh, so they still have the function of, of meeting an objective, but you're saying that they, they do different things beyond the traditional passive learning. Uh, we may get uh, sidetracked into what do you mean by objective. Okay, <laughs> we have time. So what do you mean by an objective then? Um, by the way, the type of training you do and I do uh, to us, the main metric, the only metric is does whatever we do result in accomplishing business goals. If by objective we mean able to recall the principles and the procedures and so on, that may or may not be a critical thing. But I think the goal for the learners 
which is also the goal for the trainer and the role for the learners and trainers is eventually to produce worthwhile accomplishments, results, either for the business or for self-improvement. If that is the given, I think I'm all in favor of saying, yeah, that is one of the roles for the learners. Got it. So what are some of the different uh, activities that I can engage in as a learner? Okay. The learners can be trainers. And you have done this and I have done this. And there is a lot of controlled studies we show peer tutoring, peer teaching, and peer coaching results in increased learning. When learners teach each other and learn from each other, both the person who is doing the teaching and the person who is learning gain a lot. It strengthens what I have learned when I teach other people. And when somebody who is my peer teaches me, there is less anxiety and I don't feel compelled. So there is a lot of the activities which we use, each teach as an activity. For example, we teach different groups of learners different steps in a procedure or different concepts and then we have them team up with other people and teach each other. We found this to be very engaging to the learners and we also found this to be very effective as a training technique. So one of the ways I change the role of learners is to make them into trainers, co-trainers, things of that nature, man. How do you mitigate um, uh, um, either incompetence or ignorance as they're going about teaching each other? Uh, this is uh, the typical trainers megalomania. You're probably, uh, at least I know for myself, I'm probably more incompetent in certain ways than the trainers but if you want you can always do a quality control type of a thing divide the group into <clears throat> three subgroups one do the teaching one do the learning and the third one do the evaluation alternatively you can randomly evaluate a group of people and the secret is Again, coming to objective, if you got a training outcome which is clearly measurable, like fix the paper jam in a copying machine, there is no such thing as are they incompetent or competent. If the machine works after you have jammed it up, then that is the evaluation. So we can test the trainers. Uh, on clearing up the paper jam and only after they can do it, we let them do teaching. So those are things we can do. So the other pushback we've heard is this takes way more time and I don't have enough time to run an activity like this. 
No, it takes way less time because all you have to do is teach one half of the people and let them teach each other. Uh, clarify that though. So if I'm teaching one half of them, uh, mm. what am I teaching that half? Aren't I then just running a traditional? Let us say I'm teaching people factorial notation. Got it. So like in each teacher might be handing out a document or giving them a job aid. Yes. Okay. Got it. Got it. So one role is uh, as trainer. What are some of the other roles? And the other role is we can make the trainers instructional designers or we can make the participants instructional designers. So anytime I finish teaching a class, then I tell people, okay, each one of you prepare a chart or an infographic or an activity or a flashcard, whatever you want to prepare, which will help the next generation of students. Next time I teach people on factorial notation, for example, what I want to be able to do is give those people some instructional tool you have prepared. It could be a job, it could be anything. You decide what you want to do, there are some samples and you do it and you, if you need additional information, ask me. You can work either all by yourself or with somebody else as a team. You come up with some learning tool which I can give to the next group of people. So in addition, to teaching what I taught you, they have their own tool and they can work on that. So uh, participants or learners as instructional designers is another role change. There's almost like this meta aspect to all of this, right? You're, exactly. you're, you're having them design and deliver their own learning Yes. Activities. Uh, it's almost like the activity in of itself is, is uh, a design. Yeah. So well, I feel like we're thinking about thinking right now. We're on a roll. <laughs> Good. Good. So. And the talking of that, we can have the learners teach. We can have the learners do instructional design. We can also have the learners do analysis, instructional analysis. For example, I teach people how to do typesetting, how to do formatting of pages when they are doing word processing, things of that nature. And one of the activities I do is called 200 pages. It used to be called 2000 pages, but I'm saving time, 200 pages. And paper. <laughs> and, paper. and primarily, I tell people, okay, here are a bunch of sample pages. Our goal is for you to find out how can we do layout formatting of pages that we word process in such a way it is attractive, it is easy to use, it is easy to retrieve information. 
rather than my telling you what a checklist for attractive retrievable pages should look like. Here is a whole library. Go pick up any book, turn to a random page, look at the page, see if you like it, see if it is easy for you to figure out what it is, what kind of headings does the page have, and make a note of it. And continue doing it, throw that book away, take another book. You don't have to learn the content of the book, you're just learning the format of the book. Once you've done it and you got 15 minutes to do this, Hopefully, you will be able to do 200 pages, but if you do only 15 pages, that's okay. Get in a team and come up with a list of items, checklist items on what makes a page layout both attractive and effective. So that is the other activity where the learner becomes an analyst, a training content task analysis person. This reminds me of um, all three of these methods remind me of, an, of a client we had once who mm-hmm. asked us to build a whole series of workshops um, where clients would learn our customer's product, uh, which was how to code specific mm-hmm. software. Yeah. And, and our approach was to turn it into a game uh, where they would work in teams and have to figure out what they don't know in Good. order to be able to code at the end of the two days. And they would have to strategize what resources they needed, what job aids they needed, what consultants they might need to help explain things, and then go learn the material using those resources. And we gave them monopoly money to be able to budget. And so they would do the analysis, the design, and then the self-training. Excellent idea. So that is a wonderful way to convert the participants, the learners, into capitalists. Give them a lot of money. Well, monopoly money, right? So it didn't go very far. But it was funny, the, the pushback we got at the time, which the client got over quickly, centered on, wait, we're charging our clients for two days. Uh If they're able to pass the test in one day, how are we able to charge them for the second day? And uh, I loved your response. Uh, You said, this is horribly silly. You're charging for two days when you could be charging more for the value. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we are charging people for that competency increase and the results they produce, we are not charging people for punching time clocks. Which brings me to the participants. Another role for the learners, the learners as evaluators. This is especially useful when you have an interpersonal skill as well as when you have to Going back to the example you use, if you have to have product knowledge of whatever your company is selling, one of the things we can do is have the students, like you did with your learners, write a lot of questions 
for which the answer can be found in the catalogs, in the actual objects, or whatever it is. Having students generate a lot of questions, which is making them into test construction people, especially in this case, closed question. It's a wonderful approach. We collect all of the questions, and I'm always impressed by the activity you do, which I think you call question cards. You collect that questions, mix them all up, and conduct a quiz context using the questions that they themselves generated. And so that is another way of using the participants as test construction people. Hey, to be fair, that was your activity that you wrote before I was born. Oh, good. good. <laughs> so, so that was in 1938. <clears throat> good. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Related to this is having the learners as evaluators, assessment specialists. This is especially useful when you're working in the area of interpersonal skills. For example, if you are training your learners how to tell stories, you can at the end of this session break them into groups of five people and in each group you can ask each person to take turns to tell a story. At the same time, you give the learners a checklist of what makes for good storytelling. So the four people in the group listen to the fifth person telling a story. They evaluate his performance. After three minutes, doesn't matter whether the story is completed or not, the team members give constructive, useful, objective feedback on an interpersonal skill. So this is another approach, especially in the area of interpersonal skills where you cannot machine scores people's answers you cannot immediately say that's the correct answer or not the correct answer. So to recap, learners can be trainers, learners can be instructional designers, analysts, and they can also be evaluators and the test construction people. So these are some of the ways you can change the role of the learners. So I also I want to I want to take a, a slight detour based on all that. A lot of times we hear people talking about the need for trainers, designers, to focus on performance improvement in training. Mm -hmm. that, it's, that it's it's about performance. It's and you keep differentiating between performance and business outcomes. On accomplishment. <clears throat> as Tom Gilbert used to say. Can you distinguish between performance versus accomplishments or achievements or business outcomes? Uh, there are many people, including some of our friends, say the focus in training should be performance. I 
according to Tom Gilbert. That's a stupid idea. Performance focuses on the behavior, focuses on the activity. For all we know, it could be inappropriate, incorrect, useless, superstitious performance. Just because you say something like the performance outcome is the ability to specify four important behaviors of a team facilitators. Maybe the four behaviors which are your performance outcome may be stupid ideas. So what you want is to be able to say, if I'm checking, evaluating a facilitator, what outcomes I'm looking for. You want the team members, for example, to produce more brainstormed ideas because of your facilitation skill. So don't tell people to talk about how they would do something, but have them do it and show you the results of what they have done. Which, so, which aligns quite nicely with learners having different roles. Exactly. That's the journey to the outcome is going to be varied based on who's sitting in front of you. Very, very true. And by the way, people say, ah, but I'm teaching people mindfulness. There is no corporate outcome. I will argue in one way. You can measure the corporate outcome of mindfulness. I can also argue. How so? <laughs> <laughs> But so a reduced number of silly mistakes you make because you are working mindlessly. If you're a mindful person, you don't chop off your finger by feeding it to the cutting board. Isn't mindfulness just another um, performance? I mean, you're, you're performing the act of being mindful. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, so what's the outcome that I want? The outcome is, among other things, reduced number of, of accidents. Or reduced number of, uh, uh, maintaining the same number of fingers on all people, right? But, mm -hmm. but I think that's a great point. I, I think this is one of the things we, we struggle with sometimes with our clients. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to teach people to be more mindful. We're trying to teach people to be more focused on, on making sure the numbers are accurate. Uh, yes. If they're yes. in charge of the books or in, in, sure. in other words, it is the number of mistakes, right? The accounting mistakes you make. So I, I think that's a core thing and it aligns quite nicely with the role of the learner. Mm -hmm. uh, our, our goal with the learners is to get them doing stuff. Yes, exactly. Whether it's evaluating, training, teaching as a way of hopefully demonstrating the outcome we're, we're looking to teach. Ah, that suggests another role change for learners. What's that? I come into philosophers. <laughs> the learner as philosophers. So folks, today our session is on mindfulness. Now, can you get into a group and come up with how do you measure mindfulness or what are the outcomes of mindfulness, things of that nature. We can have them come up with 
very ambiguous at times being defined by having a conversation and then if they come up with a reduced number of accounting errors i say that's great now let us come up with how how can we measure that particular outcome in your office and is the behavior that you think is aligned to that or correlated to that truly correlated to that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> Excellent. Tiagi, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Matt. A wonderful conversation. I'm glad. What's his name? Will is not here. You even forgot his name already. Wow. <laughs> I can't wait to tell him that one. <laughs> I'm not editing this part out. <laughs> Tourism. <laughs> we should have some time on the beach, which reminds me of one of my favorite simulation games. What the heck? Ah, uh, how about? Oh my gosh! I I see him. I know the game is called Sex on the Beach. Oh, good. <laughs> but I forgot his name. Chuck Petronic. Petronic. Yeah. So I'm glad. Will is having some leisure. I'm equally glad he's not here to pick holes in the <laughs> of our conversation. Yeah, we'll see. He might still be able to. <laughs> so We should give him the last five minutes to contradict everything we say. And I will do that. Okay, good. I'll do that. All right, till next time. Thank you, sir. here with Matt and Patty Shank, the amazing Patty Shank. She's the author of the Deeper Learning series. And uh, that is not a series of young adult novels, although it could be. But it's a great set of books, Practice and Feedback for Deeper Learning, Manage Memory for Deeper Learning, Write and Organize for Deeper Learning. And now Patty has published an online workshop called Write Learning Assessments for Deeper Learning. And we want to talk with her about questions in learning. You know, it goes way back to Plato and Socrates questioning for learning. And uh, we want to ask Patty about those things. So um, I think we'll just get started with the first question. Sounds Sound good. good, Matt? Sounds good. But I, I right. have to admit, I, I, before we do, I, I have to say, Patty, I'm having a fanboy moment here. Oh, I love that. So... <laughs> No one's ever said that to me. So that's like yeah. the best thing ever. I, I have been to so many conferences, taken so many of your sessions, and everything uh, that you've ever done has been both profound and inspiring. So thanks well, thank for joining you. us today. I'm really happy to be here. Always happy to talk about, about the things that, that I work on because I, I pretty much go by what interests me. So when other people are interested in in the things I'm doing, I'm just super excited. Well, it's yeah. great because Will and I have been doing this now for, for a little bit. We're pretty new at it. And, you know, both of us uh, have been really diving heavily into this radio format, which is good because we both have faces for radio. Oh, uh, man. 
Michael Patty, he mentions this in every episode. So I, <laughs> I, it annoys the hell out of me, but I can't stop him. And you know what? He edits the thing, so I can't even edit it him out. So. <laughs> well, I totally, I totally get it. I remember my dad was a radio and television producer. I told my dad I wanted to do te television, like news or, or commentary. And <laughs> this is something your father shouldn't say to you. But he said, I think radio would be better for you. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> Whoa. Wow. I, you know, I think we should do some deeper learning right here. Right. It, 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 was, it was depressing to me at the time. I was, I was uh, in my early 20s and, and probably looked the best I would ever look in my entire life. Oh no, I think I think you reached the pinnacle right now. I don't know. But, Thank okay. you. <laughs> All right, Patty, let me ask you our first question. Okay. Um, you are sort of world renowned for being a research inspired or research based or research informed, whatever term you want to use, but a person who likes to take the scientific research on learning and then translate that into practical recommendations. Why do you do this? Why, why is research so integral to your work? Well, that's a really good question because, because um, some would say that it's harder to do it that way because you actually have to know the research. So why do it? Well, the, the reason is, and you guys both know this, uh, that for, for, to a large extent, a lot of what goes on in L&D is just folklore or just what you know design of content or whatever it's not it's not designed specifically to make a difference and so what became very clear is that if we want to get good outcomes from instruction just like if we want to get good outcomes from baking or good outcomes from building a wall we have to use what <laughs> science says actually works. I mean, you may not realize that if he's framing a home, he's using research-based uh, tactics um, so that that wall stays up, so that it stays stable and all that sort of thing. But if you look up carpentry science, you'll find all manner uh, of science behind it. Um, wood science, who knew that was a thing? And, and physics and math and geometry. So it's exactly the same in our field. The, the results we get from instruction are tied to how we do the instruction. And the, the recent Solace um, article about a meta-analysis of what works in training um, shows this to be true, that, that training can and does have a major effect on business outcomes, but only if it's done in a way that that uh, is is outcomes based, and the outcomes based it comes all from research. So that's what we have to do. We have to do it. We have to do it because we cannot. We simply cannot afford to be having tons of stuff out there that just doesn't work. Well, I, you know, I completely align with what you're saying. I just wonder if you have any insights as to why we just do this folklore stuff that doesn't work that well. <laughs> no, I have, I have no insights. Why would you do something that doesn't work when the research tells you what does work? And most of it is not rocket science. It's not, not all that hard to do. Um, it's hard to read the research, but it's not hard to apply it. And that there's people 
like, like the three of us who interpret that. So you don't have to read it. Um, you just have to apply it. I, I have no clue. Why would anybody do what doesn't work? I, sometimes it feels to me that people confuse something working and them thinking it's working. And, and so a lot of the, the people that use DISC or use MBTI um, or, or other assessments like that, they claim that it works to help build community. It helps people to recognize their individual differences. And, and so they have a visceral feeling of the tool working for them, but that, that's different. It's distinct from actually working. So there's, there's a really good, and I, I tried to find this recently and I couldn't find it. Um, I follow medical research on nutrition and up to, up to the last two, three years, nutrition science has been all folklore and political. Um, and it, there's been very little really good solid nutrition science. And I'm a health educator by background. So that's one of the reasons I have this intense interest in this. Like what's the best diet? It for humans? Um, how can we live longer and be healthy? And so there was a, um, a podcast that I listened to, and she talked about four levels of evidence. And this was a, um, Zoe Harcomb, I think is her name. And she talked four levels of evidence for nutrition science. And it's true for any evidence, right? But she's talking, she's talking to nutrition people and health people um, and doctors. And um, anecdotal evidence um, doesn't even make it into the top four. I mean, it's, it's related to the fourth one. I can't remember, but it's just not good evidence. It's, it's compelling to the individual, but it's not compelling as this is what we should apply. And so I, th I think people just like to mistake rationality um, for, for their opinion, their opinion equals rational. I think they mistake their opinion about what they've seen work um, or what they think is working um, for, for good evidence. And it just simply isn't. And I don't think we've, I think that's another area that, that the three of us and, and others in our field who are doing what we do can make a big difference to say, here's good evidence. What does good evidence mean? Um, I, I think it's, it's, just, it's just normal. It just goes along with what, what people do in general. Well, it, this is how I feel about it, so it's true. But, it, yeah. but, but we can make a huge difference by helping people understand that that's not good enough. It's, it's low-level evidence. Yeah, I, I like your optimism. And I, you know, that's why I've been doing the work that I've been doing. But, you know, the one thing that to me is sort of a structural problem in our field is our lack of feedback. And uh, we're sort of, you know, um, it, we have a blindness about how effective our learning interventions are. So we do mostly smile sheets or we measure butts and seats. And that well, doesn't give us very good feedback. And if we don't, if we had good feedback, you know, we'd, we'd, get, we'd get better at it and we'd demand to use the best evidence, but we don't get that good feedback, so therefore, maybe I don't but need who, that. Who's evidence. the we though, Will? Um, I think uh, any learning architect, any learning experience designer, um, we put programs out there 
and we don't get good feedback on whether they're effective in getting uh, understanding or remembering or actual application. Would you both say that, though that that's a systemic problem? Yeah, uh, because it's 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 often stakeholder driven. Right, and that's that's exactly what what I was thinking while Will was saying that is we've trained stakeholders to expect content and yeah. not expect results. And so we now have stakeholders that if we said we need to do X or Y because we would get better outcomes, they'd be annoyed because no, um, that's not your role. Your role is I, I want people to be nicer to customers. So your role is to design nicer to customers content. But that shouldn't even be our role. It's, it's, it's the wrong, we're not even doing the right things. You know, we're doing the wrong things um, in, right. in so many ways. So we, we're not going to solve this problem, but we'll probably have you back on, Patty, just to discuss this, because this is so critical to our industry. Um, I, I agree. I don't have an answer. Um, I guess I guess where I'm at right at this moment is if we're going to design instruction, and I'm not saying we always should design instruction. Many times we shouldn't, but but if we're going to design instruction, it should be designed to do exactly what Will just said: mm -hmm. uh, help people remember, help people use, help people understand. Um, and we don't. And that's what got me started writing the books. Is, is I just. You know, I just sat down and decided this. I was going to start looking for the research on typical problems we have. Like we don't have good feedback. We don't have much practice in our in in most of our sessions, um, in most of our content. You know, well, I just you know, picked some. That's a great great segue to something I wanted to ask you. Um, and by the way, your books are phenomenal, and they really have got they've really made a difference in the field. So. Thank you for, for doing those. Uh, th three of the themes in your books are practice, feedback, and memory. And we want to talk to you about questions. So I wonder if you can put those things together, you know, the, the questions, and uh, do they do anything to support practice, feedback, and memory? And if so, what, what do they do? Um, the, the short answer to that is that in order to be able to apply, we have to deeply process. Questions are a tool for deeply processing, and they allow, if we do them well, they help people use the same cognitive processes during the questions in, in the thinking about and the answering of questions as they would be using on the job. So, so that's the whole point. The whole point is to give people something to process deeply in a way that uses the same cognitive processes so that it helps them remember and helps them apply. Um, they're not just nice to do, they're needed. Um, we, we need, I mean, there's a million things that questions do. Questions help people process, help people d make decisions as they make, would make them on the job if they're well written, and that's a big if. Um, and questions help people think through some of the implications of, of what they're learning that they would not think through if we didn't use them. So they're, they're, 
they're foundational and fundamental to, to the learning process. So does the typical knowledge check that people use, for example, in e-learning programs at the end of a module, are they typically designed to align with the, the cognitive machinery of the learners? Or? No, <laughs> just no. <laughs> um, and, and, and it answers the question, why did I write that course? You know, I have a, what I tend to write about is the things people do poorly and that those poor things done poorly create problems for the organization and for instruction and for workers. And so um, I started with something that is typically really hard to do. Writing good questions is really hard. Um, and people do it really, really poorly, as you see in knowledge checks. So I, I did it just for that reason. It's like we cannot afford to have poorly written questions in our instruction, they cause they cause damage. What what can you give us? Um, I don't know, like a top three, top five of the biggest mistakes people make when they're writing. Questions? Well, the big yeah, the biggest one is that they don't know what to measure with those questions. I mean, that's the that's the biggest one. I didn't realize that was the biggest one. I knew it was a big one, but I, but. When I taught the course for the first time, most of the people in the course, in fact, everyone pretty much, they were measuring things. And it's like, well, what made you decide to ask that question? And it was like, the, the, the answer was, I don't know. And oh. so, so what, I, what I learned from, from teaching that the first time is that the biggest problem is they don't know what to measure. And so go ahead. Can you give us examples, make this concrete? What, what were they, you know, what do people tend to measure and what should they be measuring? Well, they were measuring whether people remembered trivial content in, in the instruction. Um, and so that was the biggest one. So what I, what I had to do in the middle of that course was write, write an extra module that I gave to them on learn, learning objectives. And that gets us into a whole nother folklore thing. One of the folklore things is we don't need learning objectives, they're stupid. Um, and it's like learning objectives are not, uh, not an exercise. They tell you what, what questions to write. They tell you what content to, to deliver. They tell you what practice is needed. And they tell you what feedback to give you. Of course they're not. It's not an exercise. We're not doing an exercise because instructional designers write learning objectives. Um, you know, that's, that's ridiculous. You know, it's to it's tell you what people, and I'm talking about workplace learning, okay? I'm not talking about higher ed right now, although it's related, very closely related. But in workplace learning, the learning objectives tell you what real world tasks people have to be able to do as a result of the instruction. And that tells you what assessments are needed. I mean, it's just, you have to have those. Okay. So if I, like, let's say somebody uh, creates a learning objective, you know, define the, define the value of coaching or define the coaching model or something like that. Is that, is that acceptable? No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, because, okay, in the real world, no one's defining that. 
in the real okay. world, they're doing it. So what is it they have to do? So um, the, the real learning objective would be use, use learning, use co the coaching model to have a productive uh, discussion about next steps for, you know, I, I'm making this up and I'm not yeah. really good at that, uh, you know, on the spot, but I'll give you an example. Like one of the examples in my learning objectives module is um, the content is how to write alternative text for images that are on, on the web. And so what do people have to do in the real world with writing, with writing alternative text? They don't have to list the, list the benefits of all, and you know, no one out there is listing the benefits uh, of alternative text. They're writing alternative text for a specific result. Um, and so, so I have a bunch of the, those, those um, examples in, in my course because what is it people need to be able to do? So the biggest, the biggest problem is they don't know what people have to be able to do and how that's measured. And if they, can't, if they don't know that, then they can't write multiple choice questions. So they're not even focusing on the right thing. They're focusing on the knowledge not the performance. Now, there, it may be that knowledge is needed. For example, there are things about alternative texts that you have to remember, what, like what to include. And based on, on the type of image it is, it's different things. You need to remember those things, or, or you'll have to look it up every time. And that's fine, too. If you look it up three or four times, you'll remember it, right? Probably. But, but um, so that's, that's the number one thing that I learned from teaching the course is that you simply can't do a good multiple choice question unless you have very well written objectives. Um, and the second one is what I wrote the course for, and that is they have to be written a certain way. Um, and mostly they're not. So the biggest problem then is that people are not focused on the right kind of Thing to ask about. They, uh, they, what, what other are there smaller problems that keep popping yeah, up in their head? The, the what I wrote it, what I wrote the course for initially, and, and I've updated the course and, and have included the learning objectives piece because, and and there's all kinds of practice around those learning objectives before you can write multiple choice questions for those for those objectives. Um, the other ones are that people write them poorly, and there's there's a whole list of flaws in the research in multiple choice questions. For example, um, how to write a, a distractor, which is a alt answer choice, which is not correct. Um, and there, there are things that you do to write your distractors so that they are plausible. And if they are plausible, they are likely to be chosen by people who don't know the answer. If you write them implausibly, then um, people just get rid of that as, as an option and pick something else and your questions are less valid. Um, so yes. it, can I, uh, so yeah. can people, you know, one of the things, uh, I used to build simulations and we would use multiple choice questions and, you know, occasionally we would throw in a, a, a choice that was more humorous than reasonable just to get people's interest. Now, is that acceptable or no. Bad? <laughs> not acceptable so so no and I get it you know like like you will every time I, I write 
I research a topic to write about it. I learn about the things that I need to do differently, you know, and multiple choice questions I learned about early on in my career. Um, I didn't even realize the research base for it, but in going back and looking at the research base, um, I realized, so, so every, every answer choice must be plausible um, so that, that, that the purpose of that is so that anyone who doesn't know the answer is as likely to pick the wrong answer as the right answer. If you, right. if you, if you give them something that's humorous, they just get rid of it. So their, their likelihood of, of getting the right answer just went up. Yeah, that, Pat, that's what, Patty, that's so, that's so pointed. My father has been trying to teach my daughter test taking strategies. You know, as she's, she's moving into SAT time, right? And, and he's explained to her that you can always eliminate two. Exactly. And the and you can do it, it's easy. Right, so because almost every, and I, you know, the, the tests I've looked at, SATs, um, I, I saw a whole nursing exam. I did pretty well on that nursing exam and I, I had no background in that area um, because the, the questions were poorly written. Um, and so the most important thing is that every answer choice is plausible. That's probably the, the top. So we spend a bunch of time in my workshop on how on writing plausible distractors. Um, so, and I've got strategies for doing that. So Patty, um, the title of your course is writing questions or writing learning assessments for deeper learning. And part of that is writing the questions. So, you know, I think might be helpful to our listeners to sort of take a step back or get a little meta here and tell us what we're trying to do uh, in assessments in the first place. What, like, well, what is an assessment? Because an assessment might be different than a, uh, a question to support someone in learning, right? Right. So, so the main point of assessment is, did the instruction work? It answers that question. That's, that's my take from the research. Does the instruction actually do what you need it to do? Okay, so the next thing is, how do you know what you need it to do? Um, and you know what you need it to do by writing very specific, goal-oriented, real-world, task-oriented learning objectives. So I finally, I'm working on this right now, um, I'm writing a self-paced course, not completely self-paced, like you all have the ability to, to answer questions, uh, Q&A, which I, I'd love to talk to you about, but, but um, it, it's just a self on how to write learning objectives that actually support all these other, all this other content. It's not an exercise. It's, it's needed because if you don't do that, you, so, so the whole point of assessment is did the instruction work? And you need to know what works means um, for any particular instruction. I mean, it's, it's that simple. Uh, you know, I've seen people get confused about, you know, whether they're writing an assessment or whether they're writing a question that's supporting somebody in learning something. So, uh, you know, a question 
that helps the learners test their own understanding of something, something that's early in learning. I'm not, I'm not sort of assessing the learning interventions uh, success at this point, or really the learner's long-term success. What I'm assessing is, or not I'm even assessing, I'm asking a question to support the learning process. And you know, I think sometimes there could be some confusions in those things. I, I, I feel confused about that on a regular basis because multiple choice questions can be used for space practice. They can be used um, to help people think through what they know. Um, you know, one of the ways I think about this, and, and I'm not even 100% sure that I, that, that I can articulate this, is formative versus summative. It's like, you know, the, the assessment, you know, what is assessment? Assessment is, is figuring out whether it works. But it also, whether it works also has to do with, are people getting, do they understand, do they get it? Do, you know, that sort of thing, which is more formative. And um, I, at, at what point? At what point is it assessment? And does it matter? Is, is it assessment through the whole thing? Um, in my head, I think it is, but but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Well, I I I'm, I'm with you. I I never know what formative versus. <laughs> I mean, formative for who? Is it formative for the learners? Is it formative for the designers? I get confused about that, so I try not to use that because I'm thinking. Right. So, so, I mean, you know, I feel the same. It's, and when I was, when I was teaching the last uh, multiple choice questions class, I could tell that some people were, were using it for, and, and it's the reason, let me explain why I call it writing learning assessments um, and not writing multiple choice questions. Uh, because multiple choice questions fit in a model of assessment and I want I want them to understand where it fits so the manual that I've given them and just recently updated with the learning objectives part includes those other pieces and then after you understand where it fits we then just zero in on multiple choice questions so so um, that's the reason for, you know, and, and it's confusing because people say, well, you, your feedback to me tells me that I can't assess this with a multiple choice question. You know, that's, that I, I, this reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that just think multiple choice questions are bad. They're just bad. Don't use them ever. Just like learning objectives. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, I'm not a believer in that. I think you can write good multiple choice questions, but I wonder if you could give us some perspective on this and, you know, maybe compare a, like a multiple choice question, which requires the cognitive uh, function of recognition versus like a recall question. I don't know, just give us the big, bigger picture here on where you see these fitting in. Um, okay, so let me just start and say that, that there's a, everything we, everything that's traditional or we used to do is bad, uh, folklore in our field right now. Um, and so we've got to come up with a new way to do everything, even though our brains operate pretty much the same as they did 6,000 years ago, right? So, um, so. Wait, wait, Patty, can you stop? Wait, we're going to have to chunk this into micro learning bits. So we'll, <laughs> we'll pick this up in a minute. Right. Well, oh, look, when I was in Belgium, I was told that micro learning is no longer good enough. We are now entering nano learning. Oh, my gosh. 
Oh, please. Right. So it was like, they asked me what I think, thought about that. And um, I was speaking to an audience of people who uh, English wasn't their first language. So I was, I was trying to figure out, you know, do I, do, do I know any um, of these words in French? <laughs> because, you know, to, it's like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> So, you know, I just, I just, I just broke uh, one of the rules. I added a seduct seductive detail there on micro learning, and I think we got off track. Do you remember <laughs> what we were, what you were? So you were, you were asking me. Actually, I don't remember. <laughs> hey, Matt, save us. <laughs> save you for what? This is great <laughs> yeah. radio. What, what, was, what was the question? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, Will, I'm a little lost on the question. Yeah, I forget the question, too. Okay, just come up but, with another one. Well, <laughs> so for, for me, I'd like, Patty, if you could share why I would use or when I would use a multiple choice question, when I would use an open-ended descriptive question, when I might use a scenario-based question or a case study question or a recall question, when, when are the different applications put to use? Okay, so, so here's what I teach in the course. The first thing is to take your learning objective and, and see what it asks people to do. And, and do in assessment what it asks them to do in the job. Now, multiple choice questions are super efficient. Um, we're able to ask far more multiple choice questions and cover a wider and deeper amount of content, which is why we use them. Um, they're, not, they're not worthwhile if they're not well-written. They're very worthwhile. So if, if they're well-written and they can be applied to many, many things. So let's say I'm asking the, the, learning, the learning objective has to do with making a decision um, in, in a variety of, of situations. Well, we can do that in the multiple choice question. Um, it's not, it, it's easier than making the decision in real life, which doesn't have three or four choices, right? You have to make it with wide open amount of informa information. Um, so multiple choice questions are really good for decision making and problem solving and, and situations and what's important about this situation. What they're not good for is like if, if you ask someone to, to build a uh, build so, a specific thing in Excel, I can't assess whether someone can build that thing in Excel um, with a multiple choice question. That's an actual performance. The, the learning objective is a, a, an actual performance. I can't measure that. Um, I can measure parts of it, do they know what tab to use? Is this the right formula? I can measure parts mm -hmm. of it. I can't measure the whole thing. If, if that learning objective is performance-based, higher level task, performance-based, then I need to use any, any of the variety of things that can measure that, like, like a um, software simulation. Um, or having someone do it and measuring it with a, a performance check, checklist. Um, when, we, when we're, especially around decisions and problem solving, which are the bulk of the things that we're teaching people, um, we can use multiple choice questions by 
putting together a situation or a problem or images like, for example, um, we're using multiple choice questions for doctors to make a decision on whether, whether what they're seeing on, on a scan is cancerous or not, or needs, needs additional tests. We can do that with a multiple choice question by, by showing them the scans and writing a really good multiple choice question, as Will, Will's called them, scenario-based. You know, here's the situation. We've got, got uh, uh, Mrs. Smith and um, there was a breast lump and here's the scans that were done. Here's three of them and here's some more uh, history. Um, what's your next step? Um, and then you have three or four answers, right? Next step is wait and see. Next step is um, a needle biopsy. You know, a variety of things like that. Um, so we can get it really do a decent job with multiple choice questions if they're well written and they're based on what people actually do. Um, the the knowledge check ones recall. Um, here's what I was telling people in the course. If you have determined that people need to remember something, like where things are in a hotel, then you're going to ask recall questions. And you're going to ask them over and over. Um, and so, so you're not just, you're assessing understanding, you're assessing remembering, um, but you're also doing it to help them remember it so that, that it helps. You know, this is mm -hmm. that, that kind of smushy line between spacing, learning, um, and helping people remember, and that and assessment. And I think we can all agree, because we just did, that questions have a variety of purposes. We know the research tells us that people learn from questions. So it's also for learning. Oh, you know that? Feedback, you know, people, we can give people feedback on questions. Now, when we develop an assessment, if this is sort of a high stakes assessment, uh, if we give them feedback, then do we have problems in having like, we have to create an answer, like a, a pool of questions because people will tell people what the answer is. I mean, what's your, I know this is getting really too deep maybe, but I just want to. Well, so, so, the other thing that I added to the course recently, because people had questions about this, is what does the research say about feedback on, on multiple choice questions? And it was fascinating. Um, and they, they asked another question, which is how many answer choices should you have? Um, and the standard answer for that is, is um, like around four or five, because you lower the choice, the chance of guessing correctly, just by, by guessing. Um, but that's not what the research says. The research shows that, that three answer choices, very well written, are, perform better than four or five um, when, when some of those are really honest to God. Like, well, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, why, why is that? I mean, do they have any sense of... Because, they, because, because there's an efficiency factor. If you've got five answers, they have to evaluate all five of them and pick them, right? It takes more time. You can ask more questions, and chances are, wow. if you've got five, your your one or two of them are going to be poorly written, but they but they still have to be processed. Oh, so you are asking people for more more mental effort for no benefit. I mean, so you that, can 
It was fascinating to me. So, okay, so if you had a test with uh, six questions, four choices each, that's 24 options that people have to filter through. Yeah, but two. we could also, if we had three, we could ask eight questions for that 24. Right, and, and they, perform, they perform in item analysis better. Um, um, but you have to write them well. So your question was, hold on a second here. I'm forgetting what I answered. Something. You answered it. Okay, all right, fine. Well, you, know, you know, I do, I do want to, one of the first things you talk about in your course, uh, I think, is about validity. Yes. And you also, when you talk about validity, you also raise the specter of legal problems. Tell, tell us about validity and then but maybe tell us about why the legal aspect is relevant. Well, the problem with most multiple choice questions is they don't measure anything important, right? We talked about a lot about this, that they don't measure what they need to measure. And as a result, that makes them invalid. Validity is the to degree to which your questions measure what's important to measure, which are your learning objectives. If your learning if they don't measure, if your learning objectives are poorly written, then your questions are going to be poorly written, even if they measure the learning objectives. So, validity assures that we are actually measuring the things that are important to measure. And so, I mean, it's the reason I ended up writing all this, doing the research real quickly. I mean, I that was like an eighty-hour week because I had to bring it back to them within within four or five days because their questions were, were not well written. And I realized that this is something you have to be able to do in order to have valid questions. You have to measure what you can measure, what you, what you need to measure, not what you can measure. Patty, so, does, that, does that mean then that I have to hire a statistician or have a PhD to be able to do assessment? Basically. No, but, but here's the, here's the thing. Um, it depends on the stakes of the test. If the te test stakes are high, you need to make sure you're, you're, and validity isn't, it's valid, it's not valid. It's degree, degrees of validity, mm -hmm. right? So if, if there are any stakes for your test, um, here's an example in the learning world. If I don't pass this course, I can't go on to the next one. That's a stake. It's not a high stake. Well, it could be a high stake in some jobs that, that, that five people are, are vying for a specific position and there's, uh, you have to pass a series of tests in order to well, get that position. It could be It could be uh, promotability. Just right, exactly. Right, those, those are very high stakes. So. When the stakes are high, the validity has to be very high. And, and How do I get validity if I'm someone who doesn't even know what validity means? Um, so there's a bunch of things. The first one is to make sure that, that your learning objectives are exactly what you're testing and that your learning objectives map directly to um, what people do on the job. That's the biggest one. It's the highest level. And I don't and then, have to have a PhD to be able to do that, right? No, you don't. Okay. I mean, you, you don't even but, need to be a learning professional. I had, I had three people who are writing a test for, for in the government that allows people to bypass the, 
the assessment process. So if you pass this, this test, you don't have to go through these levels of assessment, um, which are difficult. See, I and think so, that's so important. I want to repeat it because it's the notion that you have an, an objective, a learning objective that has to marry explicitly to the question. What are you testing for? Right exactly to that. Right, exactly so to important. that. No, but, but it's but, not hard. It's just you need to learn how to do it. Now, I'm the learning architect. I'm creating these, or maybe I'm an assessment architect, learning architect into assessment architect, and I'm building these things. Um, I can't validate, I can't, I can't sign off on these myself, right? Don't I need to get a higher authority to say that these learning objectives are, these accurately reflect the content that needs to be learned? I mean, wow, this, this is complex stuff. So let me, let, me, let me say this first. If your learning assessments are very high stakes, you need some, you'll need someone whose job it is to validate um, if they're super high stakes, like the SAT and various other things like that. Those, and those are norm reference tests and they're validated differently. Um, but for criterion reference tests, which is what we do, we are measuring whether someone has met a criteria. Um, the more stakes there are, the better your questions have to be written, and the more they need to map to the actual job. Um, and most of us can do that ourselves. Um, if, if they're very high stakes, like, like positions are being chosen, or someone's getting into a pool of candidates for management, then you may need some extra help. But I'm not teaching um, psychometrics. I'm teaching how to make them valid on your own. Um, because most of us don't need um, to have a psychometrician validating our, our tasks. Yeah, you know what I've seen is um, sometimes the lawyers get involved. They do. And, and the lawyers are very comfortable with knowledge. Right, I can, I can. You, you need to know this, but they're not that comfortable with performance, and so sometimes uh, that makes it difficult, and that pushes us toward the bad kind of design on our questions. And that's that's a problem because because the lawyers should be championing champion anyway that word um, yeah. validity more than anyone else because there have been multiple successful. Um, lawsuits about multiple choice tests in the workplace because someone didn't get a job or they didn't get promoted or they didn't get whatever um, over someone else who did um, because they got a higher score on the test. Those tests have to be valid um, and more, let me put it this way, more valid. They have so, to. So, so I think, you know, what we can recommend um, what Matt and I can recommend is if people, if, if you're a learning uh, architect, if you're an instructional designer, learning experience designer, and you don't want to get sued, you should take Patty's course. And the lawyer, right. Patty's lawyer just threw a fit. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the, re you know, people, people have asked me just like you guys did, why is Patty Shank 
teaching multiple choice question writing because it's it's one of those things like how we write and practice and feedback that we screw up regularly um, and with multiple choice questions it's a legal battle waiting to happen this isn't that hard um, if, if you can if you can do other things in our field you can do this this isn't difficult it's just not done i mean it's like how do you how do you Other write good answer choices there's a set of guidelines they're simple Practicing we're going to abbreviate our best and worst this time and we're going to take turns will's going to start with the best patty you'll stay for our best and our worst yeah what's that good. so will give us your best okay so um our listeners may know that i listen to audiobooks not just podcasts and uh, so I saw this book, it was called Ultra Learning, and my immediate reaction was, ah, ah, that's terrible, <laughs> that's crazy. Um, but then I, you know, I couldn't find anything else to listen to, I walked my dog, so I went online and I, I downloaded this, and uh, it's actually really good. His name is Scott H. Young, and I really found the book fascinating. I'm finding it fascinating. He really has done uh, a really good job compiling the research on learning. Now, ultra learning is not just normal learning. This is like learning a foreign language in like three months and being able to be fluent in it. And so most of us are not going to do that, but a lot of the principles that he talks about are the same kind of principles that Patty and I talk about, that Matt, you and I talk about. Uh, Julie Dirksen, Clark Quinn, Miriam Nealon, and others, and uh, really good stuff. So I highly recommend it. Great. Thanks, Will. Best of the bunch. All right. My worst is more of a general pet peeve that has been tweaked a lot over the last several weeks, actually. It's the, the idea of L&D professionals referencing articles, newspapers, things that they see uh, on social media with absolutely no references uh, in of themselves. So for example, someone might make a, a, a quote about a wonderful new thing in neuroscience applied to L&D, and the reference they give is Forbes magazine. And nothing in the Forbes link shows any research associated with that claim at all. Or Someone will make a, a, a claim that, that in neuroscience, I'm picking on neuroscience today, in yeah, neuroscience, dopamine, dopamine levels increased in the classroom will yield incredible long-term memory and, 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 and retention of learning. Not even one iota of reference, uh, let alone any kind of evidence to back the claim up. And I'm finding this more and more and more. The lack of referenceability of claims in L&D is, is well, tweaking me immensely. So to me, that's the worst. So, Patty, what's your well, best? My best is, is a situation that I've been in, and it's been a really good one. So um, I'm learning to, to use a new course delivery system because the one I was using before for, for my courses was extremely limited and they've got a a group uh, a facebook group and these people who are answering our questions
questions um, are doing such a phenomenal job and and providing resources and using doing really quick uh, videos to show how to do things um, super responsive one of one of the things I've been saying a lot lately is that asynchronous courses are fine but they don't go far enough often because people are learning new things and have questions and need help um, these guys are going over and beyond in in helping people improve their skills real quickly maybe i need to read ultra learning maybe they've read that they've done a really fabulous job of helping people and supporting people while they're learning um, a fairly new complex complex technology that's wonderful wonderful thank you patty so by the time you all listen to this episode will and i will have just returned from a conference in chicago that we will be attending together in fact will will have keynoted that conference uh will what was your keynote topic uh it's on the learning transfer evaluation model my favorite tool yes uh, thank you and uh, actually i'm going to cite you I'm, and i'm going to give people a link to the citation well, that's going to ruin everything you do at the keynote, then, if you, you give credit to me in any way. But you know what's interesting? This, this uh, conference is on uh, gaming and simulations. North and American so, Simulation and Gaming Association, NASAGA. Very NASAGA. cool. And I'm going to actually have people uh, use LTEM as a way to think about how to design a simulation and game. And they're going to actually design a simulation or game. So it's going to be fantastic. fun. I love so, it. So we're going to have a video of Will's keynote that Will can then choose whether you all can see. So uh, yeah, $1,000 a piece. It'll be, it'll be good. <laughs> worth it. Well worth it. Excellent. So anyway, we'll give you a rundown of how it went uh, on the episode after this one. So thank you. Patty, thank you again for joining us. It Loved was it. Thank wonderful you. to have you.